Good morning. morning. Appropriate uh, words of the third verse we just sang. He cleansed my heart from all its sin. What a wonderful Savior. And now he reigns and rules therein. What a wonderful Savior. Does he reign and rule in your heart this morning? It's one of the questions that we're going to be looking at in this passage in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. So let's go there this morning to Luke, chapter 9. At this stage of the Lord's ministry, the disciples had been with him for some time. They had witnessed his miracles. They had heard his teachings. They had been involved in in watching him and seeing him um, raise the dead, uh, heal the sick, feed thousands with a few loaves and fish. So we we come to this point, Luke chapter 9 and verse 18, and this is what happens. And it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him and asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist. But some say, Elijah. And others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. Do you want to have a fascinating week this week? I want to give you a challenge. I want you to go out from here this week with one question on your mind. And that one question is, Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Jesus asked that question. So I want to challenge you to take this one question and ask it of everybody this week, okay? It's a survey, all right? Don't have to be alarmed. Don't have to be freaked out. It's not the, the point is not to get into an argument with people. The point is to ask people, who is Jesus Christ to you? Who is he? Who is Jesus Christ? Ask your friends at school. Ask it around the water cooler at work. Ask your kids. Ask your neighbors. Ask the people you meet. Who is Jesus Christ? Why? Well, again, don't get into an argument. The point is to to learn firsthand how people view Jesus Christ. It may surprise you. At some point or other, every thinking person must come to terms with this question. Who is Jesus Christ? Some people may say he's a prophet. Others say today he's a philosopher. Still others will say he was a great moral teacher. But Jesus did not leave any doubt at all about who he is. He claimed to be God. Think about that. He claimed to be God. If he is not God, then he is a liar. And if he is a liar, he cannot be a great moral teacher. He cannot be uh, a great leader. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, writes the following, 
I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us, and he did not intend to. In Luke's gospel, as I said, we've already seen the Lord Jesus Christ raising the dead. We've seen him healing the sick, feeding thousands with a few loaves and fish. And he, de- he demonstrated his power over sickness. He demonstrated that he is Lord over all of the demons. He demonstrated that he has authority over nature as well. And the disciples were eyewitnesses of these events. So he turns to them and he says to his disciples, who do men say that I am? What's the, what's the, uh, the talk among the crowd? And people, they replied and said, well, some are saying that you're John the Baptist. That's a little crazy. John the Baptist and Jesus were contemporaries. John the Baptist baptized Jesus. So for him to be one person and then become another after John's death, that just makes no sense to me. Sorry. Some said Elijah. Well, Elijah was a great prophet. There was expectation that Elijah would rise from the dead, that he would come. Not a bad thought, I guess. Some said that he's one of the old prophets that had risen from the dead. Well, as great as these men are, was Jesus just another prophet in a long series of prophets? Was he, as the Muslims contend, just another prophet? James Stewart wrote, Christ claimed to be something and someone unprecedented unparalleled, unrivaled, unique. At first, Jesus asked the impersonal question, who do men, who do the crowds say that I am? Now he directs the question to the disciples and their own understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And he says, but who do you say that I am? And I ask you the same question this morning. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? The answer to the question is the difference between life and death. It is the difference between heaven and hell. The answer is be, uh, the difference in the answer, or the, the answer to the question uh, makes the difference between eternal life and eternal condemnation. Peter answered, You are the Christ of God. You are the Christ of God. What does that mean? Well, I've invited um, the Gaither uh, vocal band to tell us a little bit about who 
the Christ of God, what that means. You may not be able to see it. It'll look better in the new building. They just took words from the scripture describing the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Alpha. That's the beginning letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega, the ending. He's the beginning and the end. He's everything. He is Lord of all. He is the long-awaited Messiah. The Jews were expecting the Christ to deliver them from Roman oppression. But their view of the Messiah was that he would come as a political and military leader, a deliverer, one who would drive the Roman Empire or the Roman uh, uh, government into the Mediterranean Sea and that they would once again become the nation of Israel governed by themselves and perhaps they could control their own Messiah. They wanted peace on earth. They wanted peace in Israel but they weren't looking for peace in their hearts. They wanted a deliverer to do their bidding, but they didn't want a Messiah who would be Lord of all, Lord of everything. And that's exactly who He is. He is Lord. And He came to earth not to free men from their political bondage, but to free us from the bondage of our sins. If Jesus were here this morning and He were to ask you, who do you say? that I am, what would you say? What you believe about Jesus has eternal consequences. Uh, In John's gospel, it says this, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So we read in verse 21, after Peter declared that you are the Christ of God, Jesus said, it says in verse 21, and he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one. Wait a minute. (laughs) Why would he do that? Why wouldn't he want the nation to know? Why not tell them all? The answer really is quite simple. His purpose in coming to earth at this time was not to wear a crown of gold, but to wear a crown of thorns. He came, uh, he did not come to reign, he came to die. The Bible says in verse 22 of this passage, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. The salvation of the Jews did not depend on a conquering king coming in and removing the Roman Empire. Indeed, the salvation of all who will believe in him hinges on one thing, and that is his death, burial, and resurrection. And as much as he longs for the day when he is properly recognized as the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is worshipped by all, And as much as we long for the day when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, it could not happen without the cross. Who is Jesus Christ? 
Paul says in Philippians 2 about Christ Jesus, that he was, uh, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. We were born in sin, and we were heading for hell. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, our death. And for every sin we commit, uh, it is a crime against God that is a capital offense. It deserves capital punishment, death. And left to ourselves, we would never escape the punishment that we deserved. But God loved you so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to the earth to suffer and to bleed and to die on the cross as payment for your sins. And he offers you eternal life by believing in him this morning. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He was willing to put aside the crown to take up his cross and to suffer and bleed and die there for you. Don't you just love him for what he's done for you? I do. When Jesus says that he must suffer many things and be killed, he is speaking, of course, of his impending death on the cross. What is the cross? We like to wear them sometimes as a hanging around our neck. I think it's kind of silly in a way, and I'll tell you why. Because the cross was a place of execution. We don't kill criminals on crosses today. That's what they did in those days. We take a person, we strap him to a table, and we inject him with a a lethal injection uh, to kill a criminal that has committed a capital offense. In our history in, in the U.S., there were times when we hanged people. We put a noose around their neck and we hanged them uh, as a public humiliation uh, and and a way to die. Other countries still use the uh, electric chair. It's a means of execution. Now, can you imagine wearing an electric chair around your neck or a noose? It's 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 a symbol of the cross is a symbol of death, really of an execution. So what Jesus says next must be taken into context. Here's what he says, verse 23. Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. So he, he starts off this section with an invitation. It's an invitation to all. It says, if anyone... If anyone, so the invitation is wide open. If anyone would follow me, 
desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Will you accept the invitation? I've never received an invitation, apart from the scripture, I've never received an invitation like that in my life. I've received invitations to birthday parties or to an open house or to a wedding or things like that. But here, Jesus is inviting all who will accept it to come and die. That's what he says. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was martyred by Hitler for his faith, reflected on these verses and wrote this. When Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. And that's exactly what Dietrich Bonhoeffer did for the sake of Jesus Christ. That's the invitation. It's really a call to discipleship. The Bible says that the disciple is not above his master. If the master suffered and bled and died and rose again, can we really expect anything different for ourselves? So often the gospel is preached and people are not informed about the terms. Often it is preached in such a way that um, people are not informed. They, they often hear Christians um, quote this. Um, well, let me go back a step. They're not informed about the terms. Often, often preachers will preach and say, Come to Jesus and he'll fix your problems. Come to Jesus and he'll repair your marriage. Come to Jesus and he'll help you out of your financial difficulties. Now, they may not say it exactly that way, but that is the bottom line of what they're trying to say when they say Jesus is, uh, you know, one, if you, if you name it, you claim it. If you uh, come to him and you give to him, he'll give you, you know, multiple times more financially in return. You've heard the, the TV preacher say things like that. But here, how often have you heard preachers say this when they're calling people to come to Jesus? If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Those are the terms. Let him deny himself. What does that mean, to deny myself? Well, it means that... um, I am no longer my own master. The the term actually means this. To deny means to disown, to abrogate, to forsake, or renounce. It kind of sounds like you're you're in a kingdom, and there's a king ruling. And uh, as the, the king rules, you say, you know what? I am going to forsake this kingdom, and I am going to submit to this kingdom. Sometimes... um, I think, actually, it's, correct me if I'm wrong, I should know this, but since I'm not an American citizen, I don't. Um, When a person comes from another country like Canada and uh, they take up American citizenship, I think they are required to forsake their citizenship, well, not only their citizenship, but they're to forsake their country and the governance and everything else over them. Uh, Is that correct? I see a lot of head shaking, Okay. In Canada, we don't do it that way. We say, you come to Canada, you're an American citizen. They go, hey, that's okay. You can be governed by both. It doesn't matter. We welcome all. <laughs> but, but that's kind of the idea of this word deny. The idea is that you are forsaking the one who is king over you. And who is that? 
Me. Self. Right. Yeah. And you're forsaking yourself. You're saying, hey, I am no longer the one ruling over myself. I am submitting myself to someone much greater, much wiser, much more loving than I am. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. Deny himself. If Jesus really is the Lord of my life, then I can't be Lord too. There can't be two Lords. There's one, and his name is Jesus. If Jesus is the master, then I am the servant. And a servant has no rights of his own. Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Do you want to follow Jesus? Then you have to give up the throne of your heart to him, the throne of your life to him as well. We used to sing a song, I think it's still in our book, I surrender all. Sometimes I, I stop singing songs, the words of songs, when I read what we're actually singing and saying, I go, wow, that's the desire of my heart. But is it the practical reality of my life? You know, Am I going to be a hypocrite and continue to sing this? I surrender all, all my goals, all my aspirations, all my plans, my relationships, my money, my friends. Everything is laid at the foot of the cross. And I say, Lord Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. The hymn writer penned these words, Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter. I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will while I am waiting, yielded and still. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Hold o'er my being absolute sway. Fill with thy spirit till all shall see Christ only, always living in me. That is the desire of my heart. I have not arrived, brothers and sisters. Some of you are a lot further along than I am. Next he says this, and take up his cross daily and follow me. Let me just say this about this verse. Oftentimes people say, you know, they have a disappointment in their life. They have some difficulty that comes along. They stub their toe and they go, well, it's just a cross I have to bear. That's not really what he's referring to here. Everybody experiences uh, difficulties. Everybody experiences pain. Everybody experiences uh, disappointments in life. That's not what he's talking about. Uh, Those things come upon us uh, often unexpectedly. We all have a cross to bear. That's not the cross. The cross Jesus is referring to is a cross of choice. It's I choose to bear this cross. We choose to deny ourselves. We choose to take up our cross and follow him. And we choose, it's a choice, and it's a daily choice. That's what he says. Take up your cross daily and follow me. On the way to Calvary, Jesus was rejected by men. Even his own family thought he was crazy. Um, He lived a life without the comforts that we have come to expect Jesus said, the birds have nests and the foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He submitted himself 
to doing the Father's will and lived in complete dependence upon Him. He spoke the truth and was killed for it. He suffered for righteousness' sake. He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. They plucked out his beard. They spat upon him, and they thrust a crown of thorns in his head. They beat him, and they mocked him, and they spat on him and bowed in contempt before him. Then they nailed him to a cross of wood and jeered at him from the foot of the cross, and there he died for you and for me. Last weekend, we celebrated the Resurrection Sunday. He is alive, and He is calling you today to come and deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Him. But the path that we must follow is a path of death, death to self, death to my own will, death to my own plans, and and, and resigning myself wholeheartedly to Him. Paul puts it this way. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's what God wants for you, for you to be... Uh, in his perfect and acceptable and perfect will. Taking up your cross is a choice. You know, I observe elders in the assembly here who willingly and purposely give up time with their family for the sake of the saints. That is taking up their cross. They're saying, you know what? I know that I could be spending time with my family. I know that I could be doing my own thing, but I'm going to do this for the sake of the Lord and for the sake of His people. And so they do. I've seen deacons in the assembly here who also give up their time. They take time off work. Uh, Many of you don't know this. Sometimes they take take time off work to be here uh, for things like checking on fire extinguishers and making sure the photocopier is working and cleaning up after us and, and things like that. They're picking up chairs, cutting grass, working on the building, and so many other things. And when they say in their heart, I'm going to give Christ first place in my life, they have their priorities straight. That's exactly where Christ needs to be and should be, first place in our heart. They've denied themselves and they've taken up their cross to follow Jesus. It's a choice to follow Him. And it's a daily sacrifice for the sake of the Lord, for the sake of the gospel, and for the saints uh, here in the body. When I see saints who can barely afford to live themselves, giving money in the offering, giving to other saints who are needy, visiting the sick, helping out the poor, that's sacrificial love and action. When I see believers bearing one another's burdens, when I see them weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice, when I see Christians opening their homes to invite strangers in uh, and show them genuine love, then I see the daily cross-bearing. And for those who daily take up their cross, it's not a burden. It's not a difficulty. They're doing it out of love for the Savior, out of love uh, for His saints. And they look at it this way. 
Why did Jesus go to the cross? The Bible tells us that God demonstrated His love towards us. And they say if God demonstrated His love towards us when Jesus went to the cross and He suffered and died for us, then why can't I love the saints? Why can't I demonstrate my love for the saints in the same way? That is um, what he is talking about here. When I hear of believers who have literally laid down their life for the Lord, I know it's because they counted the cost and said, Jesus is worth my heart, my life, my all. The Lord said to do this daily. Why? I think it's because the needs are new every day. I think the choice to follow the Lord is a daily choice uh, because we're so quick to get off the altar. You know, as we all offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. I think it was Bill McDonald who years ago says, you know, I read that verse and I come to the Lord and in a great uh, expression of allegiance to the Lord, I offer myself as a living sacrifice and the next day the wretched thing is crawling off the altar. I don't know if you've experienced that in your life, but I have. You say, what have I forgotten in the last 12 hours? What have I forgotten the moment I stepped out the front door? A daily sacrifice. We need it. We need to be daily taking up our cross and following Him. Tomorrow when you wake up, you must make the choice again. As the sun rises, you must face the question, Who will I live for today? Will I live for myself or will I live for Jesus? We live our life one day at a time. But when you add up all those days, they become weeks and months and years. They become a life. And all of those choices that were daily choices become the character of your life. It becomes the the way you really are. And when you look back at your life, maybe on your deathbed, who will you have lived for? Will you have lived for self or will you have lived for Jesus? Jesus said, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. I don't often quote sections out of commentaries, but I I like this so much, and you guys will appreciate what Bill McDonald had to say about this verse. He says, The natural tendency is to save our lives by selfish, complacent, routine, petty existences. We may indulge our pleasures and appetites by basking in comfort, luxury, and ease, by living for the present, by trading our finest talents to the world in exchange for a few years of mock security. But in the very act, we lose our lives. That is, we miss the true purpose of life and profound spiritual pleasure that should go with it. On the other hand, we may lose our lives for the Savior's sake. Men think us mad if we fling our own selfish ambitions to the wind if we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, if we yield ourselves unreservedly to Him. But this life of abandonment is genuine living. It has a joy, a holy carefreeness, and a deep inward satisfaction that defies description. I couldn't have said it better. There was a Danish philosopher, I can't even begin to pronounce his name, so I won't try told uh, a story of uh, a night when uh, a jewelry store was broken into by thieves. 
but they didn't steal anything. It was the weirdest thing. They simply went into the jewelry store and rearranged all the price tags on the jewelry. <laughs> the next morning, the expensive jewelry was sold as junk. And the junk jewelry was sold as expensive. His point in telling the story should be obvious. We live in a world where someone has rearranged the price tags. In the next verses, Jesus shows us what the price tags in life um, or shows us that they've been changed. We've been deceived, and we are deceived on a daily basis from the world. You've seen the world's philosophy on a bumper sticker. It's, ama it's amazing to me how often the world can reduce its belief system to one bumper sticker, you know. <laughs> he who dies with the most toys wins. You seen that one? It's a wrong price tag. I think of, uh, in the book of Genesis when Lot uh, and Abraham were together and their... their uh, Flocks were feeding together, and they, they just it was too many sheep for the ground that they were using. And Abraham said this. I'm going to, basically, he said this. I'm going to give up my personal rights. It was God who told Abraham to leave, not Lot. Lot should have stayed home uh, back in Ur of the Chaldees. Okay? But Lot was the one who was called to the promised land. But Abraham, I mean, Abraham was called to the promised land. Uh, Abraham was so gracious. He said, Lot... I'm going to give you first choice. You pick whatever you want. <laughs> that wasn't hard for Lot. He was a man of the world. He looked and he saw the well-watered plains of the Jordan. He said, hey, I've got sheep. That's got grass. It's got water. That's what I want. And so he picked the best. He picked the very best. Abraham left the choice with God, and God ultimately gave it to him. But Lot lifted his eyes in self-will, and he gained a few acres but he eventually lost everything in Sodom's inferno. Living for the here and now results in the loss of everything. That's what Jesus is saying. But if you pour out your life in service for the Lord and for the gospel, you really save your life. The price tags are changed. Jesus sees right through the world's thinking, and he knows that the world has its tentacles around our hearts and around our minds and our uh, Life. He knows the allure of material possessions. He knows that no man can serve two masters. We cannot serve money or possessions and serve the Lord at the same time. So he, points, he paints a picture for us in the next verse that exaggerates uh, your potential. If you were to ask people, you did a survey, and you were to ask people, how much money do you need to live? You know what most people say? Just a little bit more. <laughs> Wherever they're at in their station of life, whether they're making minimum wage or they're making millions, I need just a little bit more. There's a show on TV, I don't know if you've seen it, called Sharks or Shark Tank, I think it's called. It's crazy. These guys are multi, multi-millionaires. And all they, they're absolutely consumed with wanting more money. I think, how much money do they need? Just a little more. Just a little more. And that's the allure uh, that the world uh, has before us. It's, never, it's a seduction of riches, really. It's never enough. Look at the people just a week or so ago who went by the millions 
trying to get that elusive lottery ticket. You say, but somebody won. (sighs) And millions lost. Jesus asked the question, verse 25, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world? That's not a little more. That's everything. And is himself destroyed or lost. So what if you gained it all? What if you gained it all? Remember something. The price tags have been changed. What you count as riches aren't really riches at all. What, is, what are true riches? The eternal. James Dobson tells a story. I'm sure I've told you this before, but it's, it, it fits well with what we're talking about. He said this, Recently my family played Monopoly, which was the first time I've played in more than 15 years. Before long, a bit of the old excitement and enthusiasm came back, especially as I began to win. Everything went my way, and I became the master of the board. I owned Boardwalk and Park Place, and I had houses and hotels all over the place. My family was squirming, and I was stuffing $500 bills under the board and under my seat and in my pockets every which way I could. Suddenly, the game was over. I had won. Shirley and the kids went to bed, and I began putting everything back into the box. And then I was struck by an empty feeling. All of the excitement I had experienced earlier was unfounded. I didn't own any more than those whom I had defeated. It all had to go back into the box. I recognized that I was witnessing the game of life. We struggle and accumulate and buy and own and possess and refinance, and suddenly we come to the end of our life and it all has to go back in the box. Actually, I think it's we who go in the box. (laughs) Jesus said, what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world? Every stock, every bond, every bar of gold, every bit of silver, if you owned it all. And that's what you live for. Gain the whole world, and himself is destroyed or lost. So go out and try to make it in the world. And let's suppose you could gain the whole world. Most businesses want to see the bottom line, and there's a profit and loss statement. Gary could tell us far more about this than I can. But the idea is businessmen are always thinking, what's the profit in that? What's the profit in that? On the profit side, you have gains. Jesus said, the whole world. On the loss side, you have your own soul, your own life. If you gain the whole world, but in the meantime, lose your life, man, are you ever the loser. Alexander the Great conquered the whole world. He fulfilled the dream of 10,000 men, but when he gained it all, he sat down and he wept because there was nothing more to conquer. He had an emptiness in himself that could not be quenched by gaining the whole world. It is said that about 200 years ago, the tomb of the great conqueror Charlemagne was open. And the workmen who opened the tomb were kind of startled at the sight that they saw. Here was a body in a sitting position, clothed in the most elaborate garments, with a scepter in his bony hand. On his knee lay a New Testament open. 
with a, uh, to a uh, New Testament passage, and with a cold, lifeless finger, it was pointing at Mark chapter 8, verse 36, the parallel passage to this, for what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? In light of these verses, how can we even contemplate giving to the world our finest talents? How can we conceive of sacrificing the strength of our youth to a corporation that will put us out to pasture after it has sapped the last ounce of our energy? We have been deceived. The price tags have been changed. And the Lord Jesus is trying to tell you these are the true riches. But godliness with contentment, he says, Paul says in, in uh, Timothy, is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Jesus recognized the the deception of material possessions, and so he warned the disciples here. But he also warned them here as uh, being ashamed of him. Jesus said, verse 26, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words... Of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory, in his Father's, and of the holy angels. There is a song in our hymn book. We're not going to sing it. I'll just read the words to you, and then we'll end our meeting today. Jesus, and shall it ever be a mortal man ashamed of thee? Ashamed of thee whom angels praise, whose glories shine through endless days? Ashamed of Jesus, sooner far let evening blush to own a star. He sheds the beam of light divine o'er this benighted soul of mine. Ashamed of Jesus, that dear friend, on whom my hopes of heaven depend. No, when I blush, be this my shame, that I no more revere his name. Ashamed of Jesus, yes, I may, when I've no guilt to wash away, no tear to wipe, no good to crave, no fear